On tonight's La Raza Chronicles, we bring you an interview on the ground in Puerto Rico. We'll dive into the work of the School of America's Watch and talk about U.S. intervention in Latin America, as well as the militarization of the border. You'll also hear about Cuéntamelo, a collection of oral histories and illustrations from LGBT Latinx immigrants who arrived in the States between the 80s and the 90s. All this y más. Stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and on today's program, we are very lucky to have our very own Crónicas team member, collective member, Vanessa Bohm, who is on the island of Puerto Rico. She is there and has been there for a few days. She arrived almost a week ago, and she is there, and we're really lucky to be able to hear from her a little bit about of what she's seen on the island. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Julieta. It's so nice to talk with you. So, Vanessa, I know reception's been crazy, and it's really hard not only for us to communicate with people on the island, but also just to get a sense of what things are actually like. I know it really is varied, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've seen either in the metropolitan area or outside and some of the things that you've seen in the last few days since you've been on the island? Well, I can talk a little bit about my first impressions walking um, out of the airport. Actually, my first impression when I landed into Puerto Rico was that there were so many people in the airport. I had never seen the International Airport of San Juan so full of people sitting on the floor waiting for flights leaving Puerto Rico. So that just kind of speaks to the amount of people who are leaving the island. There was a report that tens of thousands of people have already left Puerto Rico. And that just seeing everybody at the airport really kind of reinforced that a lot of people are leaving the island. And then I was really impressed when I walked outside. I actually saw green trees. Everybody had said that what I would see was just uh, bare trees with no leaves on them. But because I had arrived already a couple weeks after the hurricane, the actual green foliage is, you know, starting to grow on the trees, which was really a good sign, I guess. I didn't get to see the the devastation that people really saw right after the hurricane. But as soon as I drove out of the airport, it became very clear the type of devastation that had visited the island. It is so common to see trees of two to three feet uh, diameter wide just ripped out of the ground from the roots, just toppled over mangled trees, downed electrical posts. Um, whether the wood or cement posts, um, electrical wires strewn all over the street, uh, hanging in very precarious ways, roofs ripped off, whole wooden structures are no longer, you know, standing. People who've lost absolutely everything. We actually visited Arecibo, which is a town in the north today, and you could see in a flood, an area that had flooded people had, you know, started to take their furniture out and their belongings out, all covered in mud. And these, you know, these people clearly have no place to live anymore. So really, you know, Puerto Rico has been devastated. So, Vanessa, a lot of people are hearing about the need for water and also the issues of sanitation in general. So tell us a little bit about what you're experiencing when you talk to folks about what the needs are and also maybe when you go to the stores, what do you see are needs? Yeah, so at this point, we're a little bit a month after Hurricane Maria hit and 
about 25% of the population doesn't have water, and 80 to 85% do not have electricity. So, and you know, you can imagine without electricity, you can't heat up the water. If you have water, to make it drinkable, and so there's still a significant amount of population that is, you know, dealing with challenges meeting their basic needs. The grocery stores, we've seen some improvement. There are more, like, supplies in the grocery store, but it's still extremely hard to get large amounts of water. You can go into a store and maybe you can find little small 8-ounce bottles of water, but you can't buy jugs of water. Um, It's still really common to see, for example, in the town that I'm in, there are water trucks from other towns coming to this town because this town has access to water to fill up trucks so that they can distribute water. So it's still very difficult to find water. While there's there's more food options, there's, it's still a little bit difficult to find uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. It's also difficult to get medical care. A lot of offices have closed. Many people have heard of, about hospitals running on generators and generators, you know, breaking down. And so access to medical care is very difficult especially if you're in the countryside or in a place where there's the hospital, the main hospital is not functioning and then you have to travel long distance. It's a little bit easier to get gas. Now there there aren't the lines that there used to be for gas, um, except it's extremely difficult to get propane, small propane gas canisters, which many people usually have in their house, like a, a camping gas stove in case, you know, the electricity goes out for two two or three days, but no one was prepared for the magnitude of this hurricane. So it's very hard to get these small canisters of gas. And so what people have been doing is makeshifting connections between camping stoves and larger canisters of of propane gas or or a different kind of gas, which is actually quite dangerous. (laughs) You're not, you know, the camping stoves aren't made to like handle large, you know, pressurized gas. So people are doing what they need to do to, to be able to get a, you know some some electricity or some kind of power to to cook food. Vanessa, so on the issue of water, people are saying in the news and things are being reported that, oh, FEMA has huge water stations all throughout Puerto Rico. There is all this water that is available. But, you know, is that what you're seeing? Is that something that people are talking about, that they're getting free water from FEMA? Is that is that real? You know, I've again, I've only seen uh, I've only seen municipalities sending water trucks to other municipalities that have water. I don't know if FEMA has everything labeled, so I don't know if FEMA's like giving out water. I've heard stories that there are certain areas where water is being handed out, but I know that there are many other areas that there isn't access to water. For example, we visited a town, my family's hometown of Orogovis. And we talked to many folks there who live deep in, in the mountainside, and they actually have no access to water. And the only water that they, they do have access to is mountain water that they collect water from. And they don't have electricity, so they don't, they're not able to heat up that water uh, to kill bacteria. And that's really what they have, which, you know, speaks to the difference between being closer to the metropolitan area and and being closer maybe to FEMA and some of the access that that brings in terms of water, and then being from isolated areas in the countryside where folks are just not seeing that the help that other places are seeing. 
And what are you seeing or hearing about accessing money? Because right now, this is a time where people are thinking, I need to buy some food. I need to buy some water. I need to help my family. I need to help the elders that are in my family or in my life. So if it's my understanding that people aren't getting their paycheck because there isn't an ability to work in the same way. So what is happening with money? What are you people talking or what are you seeing? Well, you still see the lines are, are becoming reduced. So the bank line that used to last hours to just get a little bit of money out have been reduced. So you're not waiting as long to get money out, but maybe you can only take out a certain amount of money. And that's if you have the money in your bank account. So I've heard stories where if folks are dependent on, for example, food stamps that functions through a, a debit card, many places only handle things through cash. So you actually, families that are in need of purchasing basic needs and food aren't able to do that using their EBT cards, for example. And also, how are you feeling the sense of, I mean, when people run out of money or if there's people aren't getting paid the way they normally get a two-week paycheck or, you know, once a month paycheck and they're not getting that, they work at a store or let's say they have a, they do hair or whatever it is that they are part of, you know, people aren't able to spend in the same way they used to. What is that producing? Are you feeling a sense of people, some anxiousness around that? Or what is the sense? What's the feeling when people are thinking about, well, what's going to happen next month? Yeah, I feel like, you know, there's that recovering from the immediate hurricane and the shock of the magnitude of the devastation. And now there's a settling in of, you know, folks that have lost their jobs because of the hurricane, maybe their company has had to close their doors and so they no longer have a job. We talked to a gentleman the other day who works at a car rental place and he said out of probably 30 employees, there's only 10 of them working that were allowed to come back to work and who still have their job. Another 20 employees lost their job. Then there's all these other folks who are working in the informal sector who are, you know, making, you know, food and selling it on the street who now no longer have access to a kitchen to prepare food, for example. And so there are all these folks who used to have an income coming in, you know, no longer have that, no, 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 no longer have that income source. And so people are worried. People are wondering what are they, what are they going to be able to do in the next, you know, coming weeks and months to, to stay afloat, to pay their rent, to pay their telephone bills. And I think a lot of people are seriously thinking of leaving the island, as many others have already done. And what are you seeing about the social systems? Are schools opening soon? I know schools have been closed, roads, public transportation, any systems, public health systems. Like, What are you seeing in terms of things kind of trying to transition back to quote-unquote normal life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think folks are trying to achieve a little bit of, of normality um, in everyday life. Today was actually the first day that uh, schools opened, probably not all the schools, but for those schools that were deemed fit to open for lessons were open today, which relieved a lot of parents to be able to, you know, send their kids to school. And some some level of public transportation has started to work. I took public, public transportation from the airport down to the town that I'm in right now. So there's some level of normality in that sense. But there's still a lot of services that are not in place. There's still a long way to getting things normalized here in Puerto Rico. 
So I want to get a sense from you about people's attitudes. I've actually heard a lot of stories of solidarity and people going out of their way to help each other and help their neighbors and maybe people that they grew up with. They're not blood family, but they're family in the sense that in the small town, they have generations of living together. So they see each other, you know, and they want to support each other. What have you been hearing? What's the general feeling you have? You know, every time I run into people and I ask them, you know, how did they pass through the hurricane? How did they spend that time? You know, how did they spend their time the moments, you know, after the hurricane had, had, you know, passed? And what was it like? And most people tell me how their neighbors came out, started to clean the debris that was all around them. Uh, Neighbors got together and pulled, you know, all the tools they had, you know, that were not destroyed by the hurricane, take out chainsaws if they had a chainsaw to go down to the road down the street that was blocked to, you know, clear out trees. Um, People have really come together to share resources, to cook communal meals and share with their neighbors. Puerto Ricans really have come together during this crisis. Even the military had mentioned one of the military generals who has been in, in charge of kind of the military aid here in Puerto Rico had mentioned that without Puerto Ricans themselves helping the military, they could not have achieved what they've achieved so far in terms of cleaning up roads and bringing supplies to remote areas. So one great example of how Puerto Ricans have come together, how Hurricane Maria has brought Puerto Ricans together, is what I think is a unique thing that you didn't see before, was people on their cars have put Puerto Rican flags, which I think as a Puerto Rican living outside the U.S., you see that a lot as a way of kind of connecting with the island. But that sentiment of being proud of uh, being Puerto Rican, of, you know, coming together and helping each other out during this very difficult time, you can kind of see that all around all around Puerto Rico just through the, the flags that they're, that they're waving. The other day we went to a beach and a couple of people had painted on some rocks and surfers who had, had been able to get to this remote rock, a huge Puerto Rican flag, a lot of the news broadcasts have been showing all the ways that Puerto Ricans have come together to really help each other out. So that has been really something beautiful from all of this very difficult time after Hurricane Maria. Vanessa Bone, with being here, your heart was breaking, knowing that there was so much happening on the island and wanting to help. And you brought as much supplies as you could physically bring to the island. What do you hope that people can do now? I know that there are ways people can still support the island. What are ways that you see that people can do that? You know, Julieta, that's a great question. I, I have this fear that people will forget about Puerto Rico. I know there's a lot, a lot that has been going on after Hurricane Maria. I know that you know, we've been affected in the Bay Area by the fires, and I have this fear that Puerto Rico will leave the news headlines and, you know, kind of this, that story will disappear, even though at the same time the people of Puerto Rico still need help and significant amounts of help. And I think that, one, there are amazing organizations doing work here on the ground that could really use donations to be able to purchase supplies and to get out to those communities who need it the most. And I'm sure they will need it for quite some time. So, you know, folks who can still donate to community grassroots organizations that are doing work on the ground are definitely welcome. You know, there's this need for uh, Puerto Ricans and U.S. citizens to put a lot of pressure on the U.S. government to continue helping Puerto Rico. 
in its reconstruction phase because the entire infrastructure of Puerto Rico, its electrical system, roads, bridges, everything has has been devastated. And so I think as folks living in the U.S., you know, we have a responsibility to pressure the U.S. government to really step up and continue to support Puerto Rico. There are lots of organizations folks can donate to. I know the Maria Fund is a a great way to to donate money to, and that money goes to a variety of grassroots organizations in in Puerto Rico. And folks can also find information of other grassroots organizations if they look up Defend Puerto Rico. I know they have a lot of great information. Um, Local organizations like the Central American Resource Center and La Raza Community Resource Center in San Francisco have also been helping locally to send donations to Puerto Rico. So you can also look at their websites to, to find out places to donate to. Vanessa, so you've always been someone who's talked a lot about how what's happening in Puerto Rico has to be looked at in a historical context. So why don't you tell us a little bit for the people listening and they're thinking, wow, this tragic hurricane, you know, this is a real terrible natural disaster. What other context would you like them to have about what's happening? Well, I think it's important for listeners to know that Puerto Rico has been a colony for over 100 years. Puerto Ricans haven't been able to be decision makers in uh, creating the policies that will help benefit the island's economic development, its infrastructure. And so I think this question of Puerto Rico being a colonial island is going to be an important part of the national discussion as recovery efforts are underway. As uh, we move forward, what does that colonial relationship really mean for Puerto Rico and how has it really kind of hindered how Puerto Rico has been able to, to develop as an island? So colonial laws such as the Jones Act, which has doubled the cost of goods on the island, and the Promesa Act, which is imposing austerity measures on the island, have really served to hurt Puerto Rico more than benefit the island. I've been speaking to Vanessa Bohm, who is in Puerto Rico right now. We're talking to her as she's directly on the island. She's giving us her eyewitness accounts of what she's seen on the island. Muchísimas gracias, Vanessa, for taking time out to speak with us. Thank you, Julieta, and I'm looking forward to uh, coming back to the Bay Area and sharing my experience with uh, the rest of the folks over there. Plantita, plantita, amada amiga. 
plantita, plantita, mami. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and on tonight's program, we're going to speak to Maria Luisa Rosal. She is a field organizer for School of America's Watch, SOA Watch, and we're going to talk to her about the important work they're doing all over, but we're also going to talk about some of their work that they're focusing around the border. Muchísimas gracias, Maria, for being here with us. Thank you, Julieta. So, Maria, a lot of our listeners are big supporters and have been following the work of SOA Watch for many years. But there are some folks that maybe haven't heard of the School of Americas. So why don't we start there to explain to us what is the School of Americas and tell us about your organization. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, the School of the Americas is a military training institute for Latin American military and police that was created in 1946 and originally in, located at the in the Panama Canal Zone. And when the Canal Zone Treaty ended in 1989, the school was relocated to its current location at Fort Benning, Georgia, so just outside of Atlanta. And from 1946 to now, well over 80,000 Latin American military and police have been trained through that school. It's a flagship training school for the United States, for Latin American military and police. And we first came to know as School of the Americas Watch about the School of the Americas after the 1989 Jesuit massacre at the University of Central America. And a congressional task force investigation was launched to investigate this this massacre. And it was revealed that several of, of those responsible for the, not only that massacre, but for the assassination of Monsignor Romero and a lot of other human rights activists in, in El Salvador were trained at the School of the Americas. And on the one-year anniversary of the Jesuit massacre, so in November of 1990, there was the first vigil at the gates of Fort Benning. And so Father Roy Bourgeois, the founder, and a handful of other people did the first vigil. And, and since then, it's grown. And over 27 years now, we've become a very large anti-militarization convergence and one of the largest Latin America solidarity movements here in the United States. I'm speaking to Maria Luisa Rosal, she's a field organizer for School of the Americas Watch. So you're talking to us about the history of School of the Americas and why you all decided to start this organization. So tell us about some of SOA Watch's work in the past and what you all have focused on. Yeah, so once we knew about all of the human rights violations that were occurring as a result of these soldiers being trained and 
going back to their home countries, whether it was El Salvador or Argentina, we started to find out that a lot of these soldiers and police were responsible for some of the most heinous human rights violations and the most egregious violations in the continent, including 10 uh, dictators. Just a few examples would be Rios Montt in Guatemala during the 1980s, one of the worst dictators in Guatemala's history, but also in Latin American history, who was recently put on trial for genocide in 2013, first former head of state to to be put on trial for genocide. Other examples would be just the dis- responsible for the disappearances, not only in Guatemala, but Argentina and basically throughout the entire continent. And more recent examples, we've found that those responsible or at the helm of the 2009 U.S.-backed coup in Honduras were also graduates of the school. So we see that these aren't examples of a few bad apples. We see that this is a very clear example of how U.S. foreign policy has worked in the continent, throughout the continent. And for that reason, we've not only organized to close the school, but also really expose and place it in its proper context of U.S. militarization. And we know that over the years, it's through understanding how institutions like the School of the Americas operates that we're able to understand how U.S. foreign policy operates. And the closure of the school is only one part of our work now. We've come to understand that while the School of the Americas now renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation and in 2001, after grassroots pressure to close it, they were able to re- rename the school. We know that closing the school is a symbolic victory in some ways because there are other institutions that exist. There's over 100 institutions like it throughout the United States to train foreign military. So while it's a symbolic victory in the concrete sense, because this is the flagship training school, we know that the closure of this school might make space for other victories and, and and really challenging militarization and intervention in Latin America. So I know that you all in some ways are shifting the focus not away from militarization and intervention, but you're refocusing instead of primarily focusing on School of Americas, you're also focusing on some of the violence that happens at the border. So tell us about your second border encuentro that's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah, well, so... Over the years, we've come to really include in our analysis an analysis around root causes of migration. And as a movement dedicated to answering a call to active solidarity, we decided over a series of months of consultations with border communities and within the movement and staff and council, really asking ourselves as a solidarity organization with Latin America, where do our energies lie and how do we really stand up in active solidarity and what does it mean in its current moment? And that led us to the border because we felt that it was an opportunity to not only continue the work that we've been doing around opposing and challenging U.S. intervention, specifically militarization, but political and economic intervention as well, uh, with the root causes of migration. So at these intersections of immigration and militarization, at the border, we're able to not only bring in newer folks into the movement also, but really try to challenge this head on, kind of in a way linking U.S. foreign policy with domestic policy. So tell us about some of the ways that U.S. intervention and militarization you can really see. Give us an example of where you can really see that uh, come to life or give us an example of the impact that's had at the border. Yeah, so there's actually one of the examples I, I like to talk about is 
the August 2010 massacre in Tamaulipas. It was the massacre of, it was a grave that was found of 72 migrants. And those responsible were a drug cartel, Los Zetas. And I like to talk about this massacre because it highlights the human tragedy of the drug war in Mexico, but it also highlights that the United States has been complicit with these human tragedies. The Zetas were actually military that defected from the Mexican military, but they were trained at the School of the Americas. So when we talk about the drug war and who the enemies are and who we purport to combat, it's also important to know who is responsible for the training as well. And this also highlights the story of, of Latin America in, in, his, in a historical sense and in the current context. This massacre is unfortunately not unique, not, not unique in the history of Latin America, and it's not unique in the history of violence in Mexico, especially since 2008, since Felipe Calderón declared the, the drug war. And what we see right now is our homes no longer become our homes. I'm from Guatemala, and... Um, my family, we were forced to flee in 1985 after the 1983 disappearance of my father. I was born at the height of the, the internal armed conflict under the dictatorship of Rios Montt. And so our homes, they, they're not our homes anymore. And in fact, countries like Mexico, where this massacre, this massacre in Tamaulipas occurred, it's, it's, it's turned into a mass grave of sorts. And where where we can say official numbers are 30,000 have been disappeared and well over 180,000 have been murdered. And these are conservative estimates. These are the official numbers. Uh, but what the official numbers don't include are, for example, the potential disappearance of up to maybe 80,000 or more Central American migrants who, one thing that, that it's, is important to know about Central American migration through Mexico is Central Americans actually need a visa to travel through Mexico. And so while we are talking about ramping up our border security here in the United States, um, what doesn't really get discussed in the mainstream news is that even since 2012, the secretary, then Secretary of Homeland Security declared that the border between Chiapas and Mexico is the new U.S. border. So Mexico now is deporting more Central American migrants in the United States. And so this is not an immigration crisis alone. This is a foreign policy crisis. And we know that unless we begin to address the root causes, and we, we believe that the U.S. intervention, whether it's through military, political, or economic intervention, until that's addressed honestly and full on, we're always going to see the devastating numbers in this human tragedy. I'm speaking to Maria Luisa Rosal, and she is a field organizer for the School of America's Watch. And we're, we're talking about their work now focusing around the U.S.-Mexico border. So to focus the energy that you all are putting into highlighting U.S. intervention in America Latina, as well as the increased violence that people are experiencing at the border, you all are putting on a an event in November. So tell us about this event. What will it be and what will happen there? Yeah, so it's going to be our second time that we're going to be converging at the U.S.-Mexico border in Nogales, in Ambos Nogales. It's it's one city that's been divided by the border wall, so Ambos means both. 
There's Nogales, Sonora, Nogales, Arizona. And we're also going to be in Tucson for a day, as well as have a vigil at Eloy Detention Facility to, you know, really address in the best way possible and hold that space to highlight not only foreign policy, but also what's happening with our brothers and sisters who are migrants when they come here to this country and and how we treat our, our migrant brothers and sisters by putting them in cages. And so this is the second year we're going to be back. Uh, last year was our first encuentro after 26 years at, at Fort Benning. We, we made this move after nine months of intentional consultations and conversations within the movement and within communities that do a lot of border work and uh, resisting border militarization. It's going to be from November 10th to 12th. And just a day before that, November 9th is the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it's actually going to be an interesting day and a lot of other solidarity actions in solidarity with SOA Watch throughout um, Latin America to celebrate and continue resisting throughout the world. This year, we're going to have a delegation coming from Oaxaca. They're going to do a a caravan that's coming from the south, moving up north, and meeting with a delegation that's joining us from Palestine, but they're going to converge from Mexico City and make their way up as well. So when we want to talk about border militarization, we also want to talk about the intersections of international borders and and, uh, militarization as well. We're going to have a series of forums and concerts and uh, really show display of art as a form of resistance as well. And we hope to create this space, an encuentro, convergence, to understand what these issues are, the intersections of these issues of, of militarization, but also racism and um, migration, and come up with hopefully answers how to collectively confront these systems of oppression that, that affect us all in some way. And this year, we're going to be doing a lot of forums that speak to some of our demands, which not only include an end to U.S. political and economic and military intervention, but and also to close the SOA, uh, which has been our historic demand, but also calling for an end to Plan Merida and the Alliance for Prosperity and, and calling for an end to the criminalization of indigenous and uh, communities of color. So it seems like there's a lot going on. So you said it's November 10th through 12th. Wow. It seems like there's going to be something, a lot of different kinds of aspects that you all are going to cover a lot of ground. So there are probably people listening that would love to participate. How do they do that? And if people can't get down to the border, they can't do that. How can they still gain some of the important insight and participate and be a part of this? Well, yeah, so this year, a lot of our information, we're, we're constantly updating our, our website and a lot of the information in terms of logistics and what's going to be happening and who are, who are going to be the speakers, et cetera, can be found at www.soaw.org slash border. And we're going to, again, be constantly updating. We have a, a tentative schedule of events as well as some of our featured speakers and musicians. And from a distance, if folks can't make it down, um, we're going to be hopefully able to live stream. So if you refer back to that website, we're able to um, share some of our actions as well as some of our forums, etc. And more concretely, one of our biggest focuses this year has been around Honduras. And as some people might know that um, last year, uh, beloved human rights defender Berta Cáceres was murdered in Honduras defending her Lenca community. And so one of the biggest uh, demands from Berta Cáceres' family has been to call for an end of U.S. military funding 
from the United States to Honduras. And so, so far, uh, the human rights or the Berta Cáceres human rights in Honduras bill has gotten about 60 co-sponsors. We are hoping to increase that number, a very direct ask from our partners in Honduras and a way that we can confront head-on, very concretely, U.S. intervention in Honduras. We hope to increase those numbers of co-sponsors, and anybody that's interested in learning more can refer to our, our website and we're happy to provide more information. We need to get those co-sponsors up, and it's a way for us to be an act of solidarity with, with our brothers and sisters in Honduras to really end U.S. military aid to Honduras. It's a, it's a bill that doesn't come around every, every day. Uh, we feel that it's, it's not everything, but it is a wonderful start, and it's, it's a way to really challenge U.S. militarization in Honduras right now. So who do you think, who's likely to go and what are people going to be a part of? What are they going to feel and experience if they go? Well, this movement has, has been multi-intergenerational. Um, so it's it's going to be a makeup of, there's going to be peace activists from, you know, the more traditional base. So people that came out of the peace movement or the sanctuary movement of the 1980s, a lot of students, a lot of educators, union workers. We've had busloads coming down from from the Twin Cities area and Detroit area for a long time to Fort Benning. And last year at the border was no exception. A lot of youth as well. We've been talking on different campuses, different groups of students, um, different uh, activists that that do different work around militarization, but also migration and um, border security, uh, combating border security, confronting that. Also, a lot of the local community from the Tucson area will make it as well, and also other human rights activists from Mexico, but also Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador will be uh, converging um, on the other side of the border in Sonora. And so where can people just find out more about SOA Watch in general? www.soaw.org. That's our main website, and there's information, everything ranging from the history of SOA Watch to our advocacy work to how to get involved locally with local groups. Yeah, we're happy to put you in touch with the SOA Watch East Bay local group. They've been a very active local group within SOA Watch for some time now, and and they'd be excited to hear from you all as well. So can you give us some more examples of how SOA Watch is really concerned or monitoring the further expansion or the further militarization of the border? What are the things that SOA Watch is particularly concerned about? So if we look at the history of intervention in Latin America, and we see, for example, in the 1980s, over 300,000 refugees fleeing El Salvador and Guatemala to come to the United States, we see that this story continues to repeat itself. And we see the connection between the militarization and intervention that's happening currently. And these numbers, we're not talking about 300,000 refugees anymore. There are so many more today. And so this story isn't new. This is historic debt that we have still with, with our brothers and sisters in Latin America, not just in Latin America. We, we also have come to understand that if we're going to do the solidarity work, that also has to include conversations around communities of migrants and refugees here in the United States that are here as a result 
of these interventionist policies. We are here because the United States is there. So I'm sure there are people listening that maybe they haven't been to uh, an event like this, an action like this. Maybe even they've heard about SOA Watch's reputation of people putting their bodies on the line and they think, whoa, is that for me? Is that what's going to happen? Or maybe we have other people that just they'd love to get involved, but it seems like um, hard to manage financially. So what would you say for the people that are listening that maybe are really intrigued and want to learn more but aren't sure that, that this was something that they can do? Yeah, well... I guess it's important to also say that this really is a space for everybody. There's these older generations of activists that have come every year for 20 years, and there's folks that are always coming that it's their first time, and not just not just to the vigil, but but getting engaged politically. A lot of a lot of people that know about School of the Americas or 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 Latin America history and and the history of U.S. intervention in Latin America have come to know about this through attending the vigil at Fort Benning uh, for the first time, whether it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago, what have you. And so there's really a lot of space for everybody. And I would encourage those who are thinking about coming to definitely check out the website and definitely try to connect with the SOA Watch East Bay group. And I can I can put you in touch with them through my email. It's Maria Luisa at soaw.org. We don't want lack of funds to be a reason people aren't able to make the trip. I believe it's a long weekend for some folks, so it does match up with with um, the taking the days off, etc. And and for folks mobilizing from California, it's a lot closer also this year than than go making the trek out to Fort Benning, Georgia, which is on the entire entirely different side of the country. And we've got some ideas around fundraising and potentially scholarships available for for some of the younger groups, um, especially you know student groups, but also communities of color. Uh, we're really trying to engage so many different people in in this current moment right now that we're all living in. Ah. Es triste ver a un doctor en Nueva York Cuando ayer mataron tres bajo este puto calor Y pa' colmo estudiantes que estaban madurando Pero su maestra preferida se mudó pa' Orlando Es triste verla tanto en Estados Unidos Cuando por culpa de ellos aquí nos dividimos Que si yo quiero Estado, el otro la libertad Y no es nuestra decisión pa' decirte la verdad Es de un cabrón Clinton, un cabrón Donald Trump Que no tiene ni una gota nuestra en su corazón Nunca han escuchado coquí, ni un chiste de Pepito No saben quién es Alpizu, vetan cenitito Ni lo rico que es la comida de abuela Que la fugas pa' la playa, que fugas pichar escuela Que el lechón se come, pero puede ser Policía y un asalto de madrugada puede traer la alegría. No le da taquicardia si estamos empate. En cualquier deporte, sea pelota o karate. Ni se alegraron cuando Carlos Arroyo sacudió su uniforme porque le comimos el joyo. No saben dónde es Maya, ni Gulabo, Guainabo, Patilla, Cuamo, Carolina, Utuado, Maunabo, Ponce o San Sebastián. Y que nuestra bandera está de luto en el viejo San Juan. Pero no es culpa de ellos, es culpa de Puerto Rico que pensamos que solitos somos demasiado chiquitos y queremos todo fácil cuando hay que protestar y mandar para el carajo a la Junta Control Fiscal y mandar para el carajo al que quiera 
ir a nuestra playa y mandar pa'l carajo al gobierno si nos falla y decirle tu ideal no me interesa y métete por el culo cuál tu promesa para describir por Facebook para describir por Twitter protesta marcha grafitea pega sticker indígnate que te dé vergüenza que alguien que no te conozca diga como piensa porque es triste, muy triste ver lo que está pasando y quedarnos en nuestras casas procrastinando porque cuán bello sería yo de viejo y tú de vieja contarle a nuestros nietos que Puerto Rico no se Puerto Rico no se deja, Puerto Rico no se deja Sube el puño y deja ya la queja Esto siempre el 35 y estamos representando Cuán bello sería escucharlo a todos gritando Que por el torro no se deja, por el torro no se deja Sube ya el puño y deja la queja Esto siempre el 35 y estamos representando Cuán bello sería escucharlo a todos gritando Y el perro es con mayúscula Siempre You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and today we have in the studio with us Juliana Delgado Lopera. She's here to talk to us about Cuéntamelo, which is a collection of oral histories and illustrations from LGBT Latinx immigrants who arrived to the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. Juliana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Julieta. So first off, tell us a little bit about this project. I know that it's kind of taken on its life of its own, but tell us a little bit about some of the types of stories that inspired this to grow. Yeah, definitely. So this book was initially self-published in 2014. I received a grant from QCC, the Queer Cultural Center, and Galeria La Raza to make it. But before that, um, when I moved to San Francisco in 2009, 2008, uh, like nine years ago, I met my queer mom, so that's like an adoptive mom. So I have a queer, a big queer family. Most of the people in my family are immigrants that are, are over 50. And just going to her house and then listening to her speak, she's a trans woman from Cuba, and I would just sit there and like listen to her just tell all the stories about growing up in Cuba and how she was doing her eyelashes and like you know being a countryside kid and being queer and like being allowed to play with things like and you know going to the beach and so like in her house her house was kind of like a hub for all these other people that would come in in that way I met a lot of like my other queer family but I also just like sat there listening to all these like amazing stories and things that I didn't really see in like the public space stories that I had never really heard studying like queer history and so I while I was sitting there I just had this idea with her many times we're trying to do something about it we were just trying to either do a podcast or do a film or trying to figure out how to do it and then I came into contact with a book of oral histories and then I was like oh this is something that like really attracts me and like I'm a writer and oral histories is all about kind of like highlighting the voice of the specific person which without seeing the editor on the page basically and so I really wanted all these voices to kind of kind of like come to life on the page because they all have really really strong personalities and so in that way Cuéntamelo got started with just the people that were closest to me in my queer family um, it got started only with four stories Adela who's my queer mom Nelson who's my aunt uh, Alejandra who's my sister and she lives in Puerto Rico and then Marlene 
friend who is my aunt as well, and she passed away in December. And so, yeah, so it all was born basically because I didn't see any of the stories. Mostly they're all immigrants from Latin America. So even some of the stories that we hear of Latinos, a lot of them are born here and they're in English. And so this was really important to me. And so I ended up at that time, I was working at SF Weekly, and it ended up being the cover story of SF Weekly during June when Doma got struck down. I remember that correctly. So it was just like out of that, I ended up applying for a grant to do an actual book because I wanted to actually write it down. And in the book, I ended up interviewing seven people. And then La- Laura Ceronmelo, my partner at the time, did all the illustrations. So it comes with illustrations. It's bilingual. From one side, it's in English. And on the other side, it's in Spanish. Uh, it is both in Spanglish, kind of. But one side is like dominated by English. And then the other one is in Spanish. And so you got a whole big range of stories in that first book. So can you share with us something like a a little piece from that? Yeah, I mean, I have it right here with me. I'm going to read you just like maybe the uh, opening of Adela's, who is my mom. On my 13th birthday, I asked my grandmother for money to go to the movies. Of course, I didn't go to the movies. I went walking downtown, figuring out where all the locas hang out in Camagüey. At around the Castino Campestre, a park with plenty of fountains, I had seen a few locas, a few faggots, people who I knew to this day, La Georgia, La Miami, and other weird locas. Those were the first contact with Cuban faggotry. At the time, what's up, Doc, with Barbara Streisand had just come out, and I was wearing the same Sherlock Holmes hat, looking like a total heva. I'd cruise in my beige belt bottoms, a flower blouse, and that little hat sewn by my grandmother. Downtown, there were different areas where all the faggots congregated, and little by little, I came out looking for them because I remember I was in boarding school. The Casino Campestre had a fountain in the shape of a swan that spat water out of the beak, and there, all the locals would get baptized. Another loca would baptize you. She wet your hair and forehead with water, pull your hair back, and, and pray. With this water, we're turning you into a faggot. I was baptized at La Chica Terremoto. My godfather became a bugarrón named Candelita, and my godmother another loca. We were 14, 15 years old, sitting at the park, modeling all the clothing we had. And now comes Fulanita with that stunning dress, we'll say. In our heads, it was wonderful. That was from Adela's uh, story. That's a part in English. That's um, her in Camagüey, in Cuba. Just her first contact as a kid is like being 14, 15, and like looking for her own people, basically. And that was published with the in the first version? Yeah, that was published in the first. So the second, the, the new edition that is coming out now, because the first one was self-published, I was only able to print like 400 books with the money that I got. And most of the books were sold the day of the release, the book release. So I didn't have any more anymore, and I didn't have the capacity to do all the self-publishing thing of distributing. So this year, early this year, the folks from Anlut reached out to me. We were having a conversation about some other project, and they were really excited about possibly republishing the book and distributing it widely. And so I've been working with them for like this whole year in doing like a new edition for Cuentamelo. So the new edition is going to come out. It has uh, photo inserts, which this one doesn't. So it has photographs from like the late 80s, early 90s, and some contemporary photographs of all of the participants in there. And then I rewrote the introduction uh, because also one of the one of the girls from the book died, which is my aunt, Marlene. So it has a little few new things added to it, particularly the photographs are new. Why do you think people are so hungry to hear the stories in Cuentamelo? Well, first, most of those people are 
monolingual, meaning they speak some English. Two, they came here in the 80s and the 90s. So it's a very different, it's a very different migration story. Also, I wanted to make sure that there was a component of their lives back in Latin America. So to me, it was important as an immigrant, because I'm also an immigrant from Colombia, to kind of like create a narrative of the of the lives back home in some places in Latin America. So this these are stories that start in a lot of places in Latin America, that go back to a lot of places in Latin America, and then they also uh, happen here. And so I really wanted to make sure that there was this kind of like transnational way that we exist as immigrants here in this country that, that was present in the story, that we could also kind of like look at the nuance of being an immigrant, that it's not just like black and white, and that there were all those ways in which immigrants were thriving in these places, like Adela's story and Nelson's story in Cuba specifically. Yeah, they were living under a lot of the repression, but at the same time, they were, they were, they were managing to like make space for themselves and like cruise around and like have all these beautiful things. So I think it's also a beautiful way of how we create resilience in all those places. And just I, I wanted to have a more like nuanced approach to my own history as a queer Latina here. So that's why I think it's really important. And most of the people here are trans women, and they're also over uh, 45 years old. I think that both the queer movement and the immigrant movement focus too much on youth, which is wonderful. You know, we have the dreamers and we have like queer young people like speaking out, and that's wonderful. But I think that there's also a huge part of our population, the people that have paid the road for us, that just don't get that much attention only in like museums or like textbooks it's like oh look they're really cute but all those people a lot of them are still here now and uh, they don't have access to healthcare. they don't have the access to all this so like also in a way this is meant to create a, a, an add to the dialogue around migration queerness latinoness and uh, just focus it on like our elders instead of just like the youth I'm also just really attracted to, like, the history of it. I think it's great to, like, find out about everything that people are doing. I really love the stories. They're really... And they're very... They're varied a lot. Like, we have, again, Adela and Nelson who are just, like, being, like, super, like, faggy and out in Cuba and, like, having all these really intense lives. And then we have people... Like Carlos, who was in Lima, in Peru, having a very, very different experience and having to sort of like go through entering the evangelical church and like coming out of that. And so that's another different one. Uh, Manny, for instance, is Puerto Rican and he was born in the Bronx in New York and then goes back to Puerto Rico. And sort of like has that kind of like reverse migration story and what that means as he like enters Puerto Rico and is there. And so the story is very greatly. And I really love the that there's not one definite way of like looking at queerness here or like or looking at migration or looking at what Latinidad is. I also appreciate that all of them like explore and perform and embody their cultural heritage very differently. So tell us about this event this Friday. Yeah, so this coming Friday, we're going to have a big book release party at The Laundry, which is this new space, and the mission is on 26 and Cap. The event starts at 5.30. It's going to be basically a mix of reading, performance, music, and visual art. We're going to dedicate the event to Marlene, again, who passed away earlier this year. We're also going to have photographs and videos of like the 80s and early 90s, like streaming. We're going to have uh, a few of the folks in the book that are going to come and kind of like speak and maybe perform. And we're going to have younger folks, like younger queer Latinos who are going to perform as well. It's going to be just like an hour and a half of just basically celebrating our lives and celebrating the joy that we also bring to each other. And the books are going to be for sale on Friday and they're going to be cheaper there. That I know for sure. So I know 
Anlut is going to be selling them cheaper there. There's going to be wine and yeah, and just a lot of familia. It's going to be cute. Is there other ways that people can follow your work? We have people listening in the Central Valley, Northern California. If people listening and maybe perhaps can't make it on Friday, how do they stay connected to the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, so I have a website. It's my name, Juliana D. Lopera, so L-O-P-E-R-A dot com. And I post updates, irregular updates about my work and what I do. I'm also on Instagram. The same thing is at uh, my name, Juliana de Lopera and Facebook. So there's a bunch of ways of contacting me. If you want to get the book, you can just go to Onlude's website and it's right there. And I know you can order it online as well. But if you want to keep in contact, I am all the time doing either uh, my work or panels or everything, mostly around like Spanglish and history and queer Latinidad stuff. So I'm, I'm, this is the stuff that I, I, I usually explore. So if you go to my website, you'll, you'll be, and you can contact me from there as well. Tell us more about what makes this project feel unique or urgent or important to you. I mean, I didn't know it at the beginning, but I have this feeling ever since I moved to this country that a lot of what I have to do and that people of colors like work and art has a lot of how many times has to be in reactionary to whiteness. And that's the only way that it gets legible. And so it's like a performance of transness, of like blackness, or a performance of Latinia that is legible to whiteness, that it's in reaction to that. And I didn't even think about this. I was just sort of like collecting stories. But now looking at the work and looking at the way that the work has has changed, it's like, to me, this is very much a way of like celebrating our lives. And it's like... In its immensity, right? In its infinity. In like it also its grief, its loss, its anger, it's how problematic it is. But it's not, this book is not a reaction to whiteness. I don't think so. I think it's a lot of like a celebrating those lives, being able to put this down and write it down. So like a lot of these folks who have such a huge impact in the community are recorded somewhere. And that when people do more history work, like hopefully this, the lives that are here and their stories and, you know, in between the lines of what every single person here talks about, there's a world that is being built that is being very unseen and invisible to the public eye. Uh, this beautiful world of like resiliency and also grief and also problematic things. But it's a world that is very invisible, that is very like, this, like underworld, how I call it. And so I think that this is about looking inwards into our community. It's about learning about ourselves. And I, I appreciate that. And I've learned immensely from doing this work. I've been speaking to Juliana Delgado Lopera. She is uh, behind this project, Cuéntamelo, which is a collection of oral histories and illustrations from LGBT Latinx immigrants who arrived to the U.S. in the 80s and 90s. Um, she'll be at this premiere for sure, this book launch this Friday, and I'm sure that there'll be a lot of great folks in the room. Um, muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Gracias, gracias por tenerme.
you've been listening to La Raza Chronicles. You can stay up on our news by liking us on Facebook. You can also listen to this program again or share it with your friends at SoundCloud backward slash La Raza Chronicles. And if you have any events or issues you'd like us to cover or you'd like to get involved with the show, email us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. Buenas noches.